As you probably figured out from the reading, um, our passage for this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 8. I encourage you to to flip over there to to follow along with us. Um, This passage is interesting um, because one of the things that we see, especially in Old Testament, but even the New Testament, is the Bible often gives us patterns of life. Um, It it shows us kind of the the routine of of week in, week out, and and it lets us see and understand how to respond to certain situations because we see certain patterns. Um, And I believe that this pattern that we see here um, in 1 Samuel chapter 8 is one that God tells the Israelites they're very prone to do, um, but something that we should take into account, that we are prone to fall into the same pattern, the same um, cycle of life as these Israelites. And so to understand that, we have to talk about what this cycle is, what the, what the pattern that we see the Israelites falling into. And so if you have your bulletin, um, you're going to see an outline there for you. I encourage you to follow along. And so the first part of this pattern um, is a problem in leadership. And, and I should have added, I should say, a perceived problem in leadership. The people perceive there's a problem with their leaders, They think something has gone wrong. And how do we know this? How do we know this? Well, look at verse 5. In verse 5, the elders of the nation of Israel come to Samuel, right? Samuel is the the prophet, um, the judge over the nation of Israel at this time. Um, If there was somebody who was responsible for the nation of Israel, who was a human, at this time, it was Samuel. Samuel was also the person who had the direct access to God. So if anybody in the nation could say they, they spoke for the people to God, and anybody could say they that he spoke to the nation for God, it was Samuel. He was the mediator at this point. And so the people come to Samuel, and they say to Samuel, they say, you are getting old, and your sons are corrupt. His sons basically being the stand-in for the people that were going to take over leadership after Samuel passed. Or to put it another way, to kind of summarize this in a more vague, vague sense, they thought the godly people were disappearing, right? Samuel is getting old right? The godly people are disappearing. Samuel, you've been good to us. You've done what God says, but you're going to die, right? And the young upcoming generation, right? They're evil. The evil is everywhere, right? Your sons are corrupt. They take bribes and they pervert justice, right? What they're saying to Samuel is the human leaders who are over us are going to be bad. There's a problem in our leadership. And what we're going to see as we walk through this is really this is not actually true. It's a perception problem, not a reality problem. See, they perceived that there was a problem in their leadership. But realistically, um, if we were to have the time and go back, even back to Moses or Aaron, right, we could see the corruption in Moses. We could see the corruption in Aaron, right? We could see time and time again how all the human leaders that have led the nation of Israel have failed them. This is not a new problem to the nation of Israel, Right? The changing of the guard is something that's been happening for generations in Israel. Right? When Moses and Aaron are walking towards the promised land, their sin keeps them from the promised land. And God has to raise up another generation, another generation of leaders with Joshua before the Israelites can even enter the promised land. So it's not like this is something new to the people. But the difference is they perceived it now as a problem. The people have now realized and they realize that something is happening and so they think there's a problem. And because there's a problem, there's a necessity for a solution. So the first part of this pattern is that we see a problem with leadership, or perceived problem with leadership. The second part is that there is an earthly solution. There is an earthly solution. The nation of Israel comes up with a solution to their problem, right? Our leaders are failing us. Samuel's going to die. The sons are corrupt. We don't want them leading us. And so we need a solution. They come up with one. And the solution 
right, that we see first from the elders in verse 4, and then reaffirmed by the people. So just to be clear, this wasn't the leaders choosing a leader. This was clearly the entire nation of Israel choosing a king, right? So in verse 4 and verse 19, we see the people, they want a king. They want an earthly king. Now, why do I call it an earthly solution? Because that's what God calls it. God says very clearly in verse 7 and 8, right, that they, he says, give them a king, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they rejected me from being king over them. Right? It's an earthly solution because they're rejecting the spiritual authority. And it's an earthly solution. And, And why we know it's an earthly solution is the reasoning for why they want a king. If you jump over to verse 20, um, the people let us into their head a little bit by, by how they talk to Samuel. In verse 20, we see the people give the reason to Samuel that they want a king. They say, first, that they want to be like the nations around them. They say, second, that they want to be judged. Third, that they want a warrior to lead them. All these we find from the people in verse 20. Now, what's really interesting about all these things um, is the book of 1 Samuel goes to great lengths to show us how Samuel has actually done all of these things. For example, we see literally in the previous two chapters, in chapter 6 and chapter 7, we see Samuel, right, praying to God and God delivering the people from a Philistine invasion, The Philistines actually had captured the Ark of the Covenant, and God miraculously, through Samuel and through the works of the people, brings the Ark of the Covenant back into the nation of Israel. That's literally the preceding chapters to what we get in chapter 8. It's this warrior, right? Samuel was not some mighty man, right? He was not one of Daniel's, you know, he would have made Daniel's army. But God had used him in the nation, right? God had led his people as a conquering warrior, right? Or if we go back farther, right? How can the people not believe that God will conquer for them when literally the only reason they have access to the promised land is because first God destroyed Pharaoh's army and then God led the people in a conquering triumph all the way through the promised land, right? The walls of Jericho, ring any bells, right? God had continuously provided conquest for the people, right? We see time and time again, and we'll see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, when God fights the Israelites' battles, they win, When the Israelites fight their battles, they lose. And they should have realized it by this point. But no, they say, we want a warrior. Or how about a judge? Literally, in chapter 7, Samuel rebukes the people. He condemns the people. He judges the people for their sins. That's the preceding verses right to this. The text is trying to make it really clear to us and not give us any options, but to see the people have this. Everything the people thought they wanted, they actually had. But the problem was, is they had switched their focus from a heavenly focus to an earthly focus. So I call it an earthly solution. You see, they let us in on something really important. They say, we want to be like the nations around us. They had turned their gaze away from their creator, the one that had made them a nation, and they turned their gaze to the nations around them. And what's so ironic about them saying they want to be like the nations around them is God has explicitly told them, They're not supposed to be like the nations around them. In fact, a large portion of the law is there so they understand they're not supposed to do things like the nations around them. They're not supposed to offer child sacrifices like the nations around them, right? They're supposed to only take one husband or one wife, not like the nations around them, right? They're not supposed to worship foreign gods like the nations around them. They're supposed to be completely different than the nations around them. 
And so when they come to God and they say, make us like the nations around us, give us a king, think of how childish that sounds. These are snotty, brat-nosed toddlers complaining because they didn't get their way. And I have a daughter that's about to be two. I can tell you that this is definitely how this sounds, okay? But the reality is, the problem is not that they don't have a human leader. They've had human leaders. In fact, God has been very generous to deliver human leaders. The problem is that they want to change in the type of human leader. They want something that they can show off to the nations around them. They are no longer content with God. And they are no longer content with God being their leader. And so it's not a problem of human leaders, right? We have an entire book literally called Judges about God raising up human leaders to lead them. It's not an earthly solution because they wanted a human leader. It's an earthly solution because they wanted the wrong type of human leader. They wanted a human leader who could take the place of God. And so now to conclude the pattern, right? So we see, right, there's, there's a problem or a perceived problem with leadership which leads to the people having an earthly focus, right, and an earthly solution to the problem. And ultimately, we see this has generational consequences. It has generational consequences, right? God says to Samuel, tell the people and warn them. And what does he warn them? He warns them, right, about what will happen to their sons, about what will happen to their property, right? How this king will take and take and take. And what's really interesting, it's really subtly done here, but what the people, what, what God is telling the people is that they've come to him and they've asked for this king to replace him. And so ultimately what will happen in the people's hearts is the king will replace God. And they will stop worshiping God, but also the king will demand of them everything that God demands right? Who gets to determine who we are and what we do? God alone. But what will the king do? The king will determine careers. He will determine who lives and dies, right? By assigning people to the military, he's determining who lives and dies, right? God gets a tenth of everything. What does the king receive, according to Samuel? A tenth of everything, right? What Samuel is telling the people is that the king will become their God, and they will do whatever the king says instead of whatever God says. And ultimately, right, why does God say in verse 18 that when they cry out to him, he will not answer? Because it is the final conclusion of what they're asking for. Right? He is not their God any longer, so why should he answer them? Why can they not turn to the king? That's who they made their God. Let your God answer you. Right? It kind of, it kind of echoes of Isaiah right, or Elijah, or Elisha, or any of the prophets, right, where they're standing before prophets of foreign gods saying, why won't your God speak, right? That's kind of what God's saying here. He's saying, I will not answer you because why can't your God solve your problems? You've rejected me as king, and you've made for yourself a God. And so there is generational consequences, and God is letting them know he's not going to spare them from these generational consequences. God has every right. He could if he wanted, right, spare them from consequences, but he won't. And in fact, we know literally it's not generations later, it's Saul and Saul's sons, right, that start causing these problems. And it's so bad that we have to install a whole new line of kings, right? That's why we get David, because it literally takes one generation later for these problems to start to develop. 
And so see this cycle, because I think this is, is really important that we understand what happens. Right? We see a perceived problem in leadership. And what I want us to understand is I really don't think, it's, at least in this text, is actually a problem in leadership. Right? Samuel's still alive, and he's alive long enough that we're going to see him go to Saul. We're going to see him go to David. It's not like he's, you know, he's not 100 years old at this point. At least it doesn't seem in the text. But a perceived problem in leadership leads to the people not looking to God for the solution, but looking to their neighbors for the solution. And ultimately, because they look to their neighbors for the solution, their solution is an earthly one. And because it's an earthly one, it is sin, and so it has consequences not only on them, but on the people around them and on the generations to come. And so here's the pattern that we see. And ultimately, it ends, right, with the people not listening to God's voice, but what does God tell Samuel? He says, listen to their voice. Listen to their voice. Let the people's voice speak. And so the word of God is kept silent. And the people do not hear God, and so they turn away from him. And so this pattern, and the reason I, I brought this text, and I have to be fair, I spent a long time preparing this text this morning and, and debating this text. Um, and Aaron Bess, Betts can attest um, that I've wanted to preach this passage for probably at least six months, maybe longer, maybe eight months. Um, but I told Aaron, I think maybe in November, when I met with him, that I don't think I could preach this text because it was speaking too much to me for me to preach this text. I think I told him I don't think I could preach it with the right heart. And he said, get over it and go preach, which if you know Aaron probably sounds about what he would say. But the reality is I felt conviction from this text. This text spoke to me because I I think I think it's a pattern that we still see today. And, and so I want you to say, I say all that, to say I want you to understand that what I'm about to say, I do not say as a neutral party. I, I say as one who is under the conviction of the pattern I'm about to lay out and who felt convicted by this text. But I believe that the pattern given to us in 1 Samuel chapter 8 by the Israelites and by God, divinely through his word, is the pattern of the American church right now. Here's what I mean. Here's the modern problem. We have a problem with leadership. It sure seems like godly leaders are few and far between, doesn't it? It seems like there's wolves all in the church. Right? When the biggest churches are led like people like Joel Osteen and Stephen Furtick and people like that who are wolves in sheep's clothing, leading people astray. Right? It sure seems like there's a problem with leadership in our churches. Right? You don't have to look very far. You don't have to look very hard to find abuse in churches by leaders, verbal, physical, sexual. Right? In fact, it seems weekly we're hearing of one. Right? Failures in churches. I probably could spend the next 10 minutes just listing pastors that we all probably know that have failed in some capacity. Right? It sure seems like we have a problem in leadership, doesn't it? That the people who are supposed to be leading us in a human, in a human way, our pastors and our, our leaders, right, even in our seminaries in some ways, have failed us, right? It wasn't that long ago that we, as a Southern Baptist Convention, had a fight to take back our convention because we felt like there was a problem in leadership. And so this perceived problem in leadership, which is fine, there, there are times, right, we see 
right? There are times when there is a problem in leadership. God condemns leaders all throughout the Bible. It's not wrong to perceive there's a problem in leadership, but there is a problem when we look for an earthly solution. I am convinced that's what the American church has done. Here's why. We looked for an earthly solution. Why? Because we looked not for biblical qualifications. Instead of looking for qualifications given us in Scripture, we looked for people that were gifted to lead us. We looked for people that were charismatic to lead us. We looked for people that were famous to lead us. We looked for people that made us look good. We looked for people that we wanted to follow. We set the standards, just like the Israelites, we set the standards for what it meant to follow. We wanted, instead of wanting pastors, we wanted CEOs, right? We looked to companies to figure out how to run our churches instead of God's word. We wanted pastors that could fix everything, right? that can make our churches better, that can make our marriage better, that can make us better. And if they didn't, well, goodness knows it wasn't a problem with us, it was a problem with them. And so we wanted to look around and measure success by what the world says is success instead of what God's word is. Right? You want to go be a pastor at a big church, well, then you better have built buildings, you better have baptized people, and you better have put bottoms in seats. which goodness knows how the scripture would speak about building buildings, right? Or bottoms and seats, right? Jesus literally dying on the cross with everyone deserting him. Or baptisms, like we have any control on who gets saved. We have measured success by the world's standards, and so we have appointed leaders to meet worldly standards. We wanted earthly kings, And so we cry out to Jesus, our king, and say, give us a king. We have said exactly what the Israelites said to God. And God, being gracious and merciful, has given us what we've asked for. And so we have generational consequences. Listen, we know, statistically speaking, our children and our grandchildren are way less likely to grow up in a Bible-believing church than any generation to come before them in America. We have more abused, we have more betrayed in our churches because we have wanted earthly kings and we have reaped the consequences of what we've sown. Right? We are wasting resources and we are wasting time. People are going to hell right now not getting the chance to hear the gospel because we wanted earthly kings. And we wanted our standard of leaders to be the standard for leaders. And so let's be clear about what the problem is. Just like the Israelites, the problem was not in the leader. The problem is in our hearts. We are wicked. We are evil. A good pastor or a bad pastor will not fix us. Good programs or bad programs will not fix us. Doing more outreach or doing less outreach or or anything you can cock up will not fix us. Conventions, associations, partnering together, not partnering together, right? Progressive, fundamentalist, none of this is going to save us, right? The only thing that can be a solution to us is salvation that belongs to Christ alone, deposited in our hearts and sealed with the Spirit until Christ returns to completely fix the problem. 
It's the only thing that can. Complete dependency on the sufficiency of Christ was, is, and always will be the solution to God's people. And so it is necessary, sadly, that I bring this text to bear on our congregation. And so I'm going to ask some questions of inventory. And to be honest, it's probably the part I'm most nervous about. And I want to say I don't know your heart. I can't honestly say whether I think this pattern is true or not in our churches, in our church here. But goodness knows when we read the word of God and we see a pattern, we better ask if it is true. And so here's some questions to ask of us to help us reflect on if this is true of us and if there's some repenting that we need to do. Are we content if God sends us a pastor that can't solve our problems? If God sends us a pastor that can't solve your marriage, can't make your marriage better, are you okay with that? I don't know what exactly you think our problems are as a church, but if God sends us a pastor that can't solve those, are you okay with that pastor? Are we content if God sends us a pastor who is weak? Who is frail? Who is old? Or young? Or inexperienced? Or whatever it may be. Are we content with God to send us a pastor who is the worst preacher in town? Are you content with God to send you a pastor you find absolutely boring when he preaches? What if the pastor God sends us never meets your expectations? Can you be content with God? Do we truly want the pastor that God is going to send us? Here is a trustworthy saying. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well and see that his children obey him, and he must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. If anyone does not know how to manage his own family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and to the devil's trap. If God were to send us this pastor, would we send him back to God and say, no, that's not good enough? Whenever we call a pastor here, whenever he comes in view of a call, what questions are we going to ask? Are we going to ask about his education or his experience or what his vision is for the church, or how he's going to grow us as a church, or or what he's going to do to lead us? Or are we going to ask instead about how he loves his wife? About he strives not to be quarrelsome? About if he's violent or if he's gentle? Are we going to ask about how he leads his family, as if children obey him? Are we going to ask how he's growing in wisdom and godliness? Are we going to take the time to ask about his character? You see, there's a pattern that happens. And I, I think this can be true of any congregation. The reason we want 
successful and famous and important pastors is because it makes us look good. Right? We all like to brag on leadership. Right? We all like to brag on our pastor and say, look at that pastor. He's so great. He's so awesome. Why do we say that? Because partially we say that because it makes us look good. Right? Oh, he's the best preacher in town, and I go to that church. Right? I have a part in that. I have something to say that. Or my pastor is so great. I have a part in that. And, and listen, let's be clear. The scripture makes abundantly clear that we want to do all things with excellence. I'm not saying let's get a bad pastor just to have a bad pastor. But what we don't want is to go searching for a pastor that can make us like the nations around us. We want a pastor that can make us like Christ because he lives out the things of Christ. And so I say all that not for the purpose of judging, but for the purpose of honest examination. The Puritans, our kind of spiritual forefathers in a lot of ways in America, believed heavily in the process of binding your conscience to the word of God. And so that's what I'm asking us to do this morning, to bind our conscience to the word of God, to say we will hold our leadership not to our standards, but to the standards that God has laid out. And so let's humbly place our hearts before God and let him do what he wills, not what we desire. Because there's only one king of kings. There's only one Lord of lords. There's one God upon the throne. And there's one lamb returning to conquer all. So let him reign in our families. Let him reign in our hearts. And let him reign in our church. God will use the human leaders that he gave us. It's not that God doesn't want human leaders, that God doesn't use them, right? God gave the Israelites, Moses and Aaron and Joshua, right? And the judges and, and Samuel, and then he eventually gives them David, right? God gives human leaders and he uses human leaders. He gave the church first the apostles, right? And then prophets and overseers and deacons, right? And evangelists, he gives human leaders, And so we do not reject human authority over us. It does mean, however, that we recognize that leadership should flow out of Scripture because that's where God's authoritative voice speaks. The only reason I can stand up here and share this this morning is because the Word of God says it, not because I want to say it. And anything I say, you should forget immediately. But anything the Word of God says, you should never forget. And so it means we measure faithfulness, not success. It means we give grace and mercy. It means we serve alongside sinful humans saved by the cross of Christ. It means we rejoice in whoever God places over us while crying out, even so come, return, Lord Jesus. So as the praise team comes to lead us in in a song of invitation, examine your heart. Bind it to the word of God. And say, I will judge by the standard of God, and I will leave my notions, my ideas, my hopes and dreams at the cross of Christ, and be satisfied in whatever Christ leaves me. And so as I end today, I want to leave you with what the psalmist cries out in Psalm 130. This is what he says. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness, 
so that we can with reverence serve you. I wait for the Lord, my whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait for the Lord, more than a watchman wait for morning, more than watchmen wait for morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord, for, the, for with the Lord is unfailing love, and with him is full redemption. He himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. Let us stand and sing together. Take up.